When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. <laughs> oh, no, no. Let's leave it in. No, let's just keep going with it. That was a straight up flat hold. Just... And we're rolling. That's uh, this You're your... Matthew. Yes. I'm Kyle. Yep. This is your podcast of music discovery on Audio Judo. We're proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, we are beginning to wind down our fourth season with a few more episodes, gearing up for season five that will have a bevy of episodes led by our patrons, as well yeah. as some surprises, a couple of interviews and some great album choices, fingers crossed. Besides this podcast, we also produce two additional podcasts, Audio Judo Does Jazz, which we hope to begin to deliver season two this summer at some oh, point, yeah. and Throughline, which just wound up season one and is uh, taking a well-deserved break since he does it all by himself. Yeah, right. I can't blame him. I uh, I would take yeah, some time off, too, work. and go to Iceland, because why not? Yeah, sure. Uh, we look forward to welcoming both of those programs back soon, but in the meantime, we will continue to hold down the fort with this here program. Besides all of those offerings, we also have a Patreon account where we have even more stuff available. Kyle, would you like to tell them about that? Sure. So uh, we have three tiers on our Patreon account. Uh, the highest tier is called the Backstage Pass tier. It's $20 per month. And for that, you get a shout out by name or nickname at the end of every episode. Early access to episodes via Patreon. Uh, access to our mini episodes that we call Judo Chops. Access to bonus bits that we had to cut from uh, regular episodes for time or clarity or because we were a little farty. Uh, plus, after three months at the Backstage Pass tier, you'll get a special gift from Matthew and I. And plus, the big one, uh, after one year at this tier, you get to co-host an episode of Audio Judo with Matthew and I on the album of your choice. You want to help us out a little bit and get a little something in return for yourself? Uh, you can join the Front Row Seats tier. Uh, it's $5 per month, and for that, you get a shout-out by name or nickname at the end of every episode, early access to the episodes uh, via Patreon, uh, access to the Judo Chop mini-episodes, and access to some of the chopped-out bonus bits. Finally, if you want to help out the uh, podcast and maybe just get a little something in return for yourself, you can join the Shout Out Loud tier. That's the equivalent of $1 a pound or euro or whatever your local currency is per month. And for that, you'll get a shout out at the end of uh, every episode by name or nickname. Yeah, right. You out of breath? Ooh. It was good. It was good. I need kind to slow that one down a little bit. But yeah, uh, we do have what, at least three, maybe four patron episodes coming up in the next six months. Yes. So, yes, we uh, have, yeah, we so, have a, 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 one would say a bevy yes. of, uh, of episodes to record with, uh, with uh, loyal listeners. So, yeah. So year of the patron, this com uh, coming, uh, coming season of the patron, I guess right. is the better way to put that. Apparently so. Uh, yeah. So for this week's episode, we head back into the early nineties when grunge was king, mm -hmm. but the musical landscape. I think as a result of grunge was starting to change.
change. Hair metal was rapidly disappearing. We were starting to see the rise, early rise, of the singer-songwriter as they competed with the growing grunge market. People that were looking for alternatives to that kind of Seattle sound were finding new uh, new musical formats all the time. And the singer-songwriter, and more specifically, the female singer-songwriter, were kind of bursting onto the scene. So today we're talking about Sarah McLaughlin and her 1993 triple platinum album, Fumbling Towards Ecstasy. Triple platinum. Triple platinum. Yeah. yeah. The the record, an immediate hit in her native Canada, would kind of slow burn its way up to number 50 on the Billboard Top 200. It would get to number two on the catalog album chart, which I'm still not entirely sure what the hell that is. I don't yeah, know what that represents. That is that, do you order it out of a catalog back then? <laughs> was, it, was it a mail order situation? Like, I don't understand what that we, means. We cataloged all the albums. And this was number and, two. Yeah. We just put them in a catalog and this happened to be number two. This is 000002. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> But either way, it was a very successful album for her was her international breakthrough. Yeah. She would achieve even more success with the album after this, 1997's Surfacing. But this one clearly established her star power and was the impetus behind her creation of the female singer-songwriter answer to the Lollapalooza tour, the Lilith Fair. It's hard to say. So this album, a lot like Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes, another album that we have covered, benefits from space. On the record. Yes. Sounds that almost seemed like a direct response to grunge. Some people were probably looking for a quieter sound, a more introspective sound, emotional lyrics, softer voices, and they found this style of music as a great alternative to alternative. Yeah. One thing that I did, and now's the perfect time to bring it up since you just mentioned it, basically, yeah. is this does have a very open, airy feel to it. Mm-hmm. And we'll come back to why I think that is a little mm-hmm. bit later. But I think that... Oh, there's a very to, specific to reason why. Oh, yeah. And I think we're probably on the same page on that one. Yeah. But before we talk about Fumbling Towards Ecstasy, this record, we should talk about the artist who crafted it, Sarah McLaughlin. Yeah. Uh, Sarah was born in January 1968 in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and she was given up for adoption and was placed and adopted by the McLaughlin family. She was a musician from a very early age, first learning the ukulele and then moving to the piano, guitar, and voice. Uh, She studied at the Maritime Conservatory of Performing Arts through her adolescence, which is a private school in Halifax, founded in 1887. So, if you know anything about this, the school is infamous for becoming the morgue for Halifax in the wake of the Halifax explosion that took place in 1917. If you haven't heard anything about that, holy shit. Um, So on the morning of December 7th, 1917, the French cargo ship, the SS Mont Blanc, collided with the Norwegian vessel, the SS Imo, in the harbor of Halifax, and the Mont Blanc was laden with explosives and caught fire and then exploded, devastating the Richmond area of Halifax, the blast itself killed 1,800 people and injured 9,000 more. Uh, What? At the time, the blast was the largest man-made explosion in history up to that date. What? Yes. Holy crap. Equivalent to almost three tons of TNT. Whoa. Yeah. It devastated the community. So they used this music school as the makeshift morgue and there's there's these black, obviously black and white, but black and white pictures of just bodies with sheets on just lined up for row after row after row after row after row. So what you're telling me is this school is 100% haunted by like absolutely 19 teens ghosts. Yeah, yeah. Like people who were like, has the Great War ended yet? No, it's in the middle of the 1917. It's the middle of the Great War. In some creepy practice room, practicing the piano and suddenly from behind you somebody, yeah, it's wonderful, but it's not as good as it would have been. (laughs) 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 Uh, Look up the whole story if you're interested. I thought it was 
was important uh, background. It's a fascinating story. So, you know, check it out. But anyway, cool. so while her, uh, while Sarah was 17 years old and still in high school, she uh, formed her first band, The October Game, which uh, performed uh, around town in a Dalhousie University in Halifax, opening for could, a band called Moev. Could you find anything about where the name October Game came from? Nope. Yeah, neither could I. I was curious because it's like October Game. That sounds interesting. Yeah. And I, I was sure it was going to be like, oh, it's from some classic piece of literature or, you know, something. No, nothing. No, nothing. But they were opening for a band called Moev, right? Almost on Moev. the spot, she was offered a recording contract with Network Records, of which the lead singer for Moev, Mark Joet, was a rep for. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. But Network Records was based out of Vancouver, clear on the other side of the continent. If you know anything about Canada, I'm sure we have some Canadian listeners, Halifax to Vancouver is a hell of a long way. Yeah. But her parents refu- refused to let her go until she finished her last year of high school and completed one year of college as well. And I totally get why her parents would do that. And I totally would be on her parents' side now oh, as, yeah. as a parent of three grown children. But when I was her age, I would have been fucking pissed Oh, yeah. Off. I mean, it, it's like I just was just offered the dream right. of like, any performing musician in the world, and you're telling me, no, go to school for a year. Two years. Are you kidding me? Yeah, two finish years. Your senior... Finish high school and then go to school for a year in college. I'd be so pissed off. I would right? be like, I'm packing a bag and I'm running away. I do uh, wonder if that's why she studied jewelry design <laughs> at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. If she was just like, oh, yeah, you're going to make me go to college for right? a year? Guess what? Bam, jewelry design. That's just like flipping him the bird every time she yeah. walks off. Oh, would you like some jewelry? But she's got a beautiful ring that she designed on her finger. Right, so it's on like, my middle oh. finger. Look at the, look at these earrings, mom. Guess what? They're my middle finger. <laughs> So she put it off. She listened to her parents. Weird. That's a strange thing. And she ended up signing the contract two years later and moved to Vancouver, but not without meeting her birth mother, which happened around this time as well, a meeting that she was completely ambivalent about and uh, sought no further contact after that. And it must not have been great. And I can't imagine what that must feel like. So Yeah. Somebody that she knew, knew her birth mother is what it sounded like to me. And they just kind of like, oh, and by the way, here's your birth mother. Like, what? What? Yeah, that's a little little weird. <laughs> so her first album, Touch, was released in 1988. Uh, we get to number 132 on the Billboard Top 200, number 61 in Canada. Uh, the album would eventually sell over half a million co- uh, copies in the States, 100,000 in the Great White North, mostly in the wake of her later success. Sarah played guitar, keys, piano, sang all the vocals on the record. The album did contain a minor hit, a song called uh, Vox, which uh, reached number 90 in Canada, but failed to chart elsewhere. But then for her second album, she had signed a new deal with Arresta Records for U.S. distribution while she stayed on the Network Records label in Canada. That's typical, actually. And that move would prove important for her. More importantly, she began her professional relationship with her longtime producer and sometimes co-writer Pierre Marchand. I'm sure you read about this guy, but he's produced for many other musical acts, but he has produced every album that Sarah has released since this record, since her second solo record, 1991's Solace. So that album would make her a star in Canada. Uh, It sold over 200,000 copies there, over half a million, once again in the States, on the back of two hit singles in Canada, Into the Fire and The Path of Thorns. The latter reached number 24 on the Canadian charts, and the former reached number 30 while reaching number four on the alternative charts in the U.S., which is a huge deal, especially around that time. Those two singles would drive the album to number 20 in Canada, 167 in the U.S., and would also introduce Sarah to her eventual husband, now ex-husband, and father of her two children, drummer Ashwin Sued. So, 
After some short tours, Sarah returned to the studio to begin recording the album we're going to talk about today, 1993's Fumbling Towards Ecstasy. And as we mentioned, it was her international breakout, selling over 3 million copies, got to number six in Canada. Uh, This was the second album recorded with Pierre Marchand and the first of hers to be recorded almost completely at Le Studio in Morne Heights in Quebec. That studio holds a lot of cachet in my memory banks as that studio was the studio for Rush for many, many many years and albums. Their biggest hits, Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures, were recorded there, as well as several other records, and it became the de facto part of Rush's sound. Yeah, so, And I also think that's one of the reasons why it has such, this album has such of a, a big, open, wide sound on it, because it was a very big studio. Oh, yeah. There was lots of space for people to move around. They could separate instruments really well. Uh, it had a big window that looked out on a lake, apparently. Oh, yeah. They, pretty the cool. main drum room where Neil yeah. would record his drum parts was a cavernous room. So there's a lot of space in there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And I think it definitely contributes to the overall sound of this album. I agree. But it was also a a critical success. Yeah. Rolling Stone gave the record four stars. And lucky for her and for the rest of us, I could find no record of a Robert Christogau review of any kind. So, uh, so he must have skipped that one. Damn it. The uh, So the album was released in October 93. And besides Marshawn returning to help her, uh, she also enlisted some great musicians. Great oh, session yeah. drummer Jerry Murata, number of other musicians like Bob, uh, Bill Dylan, uh, who appears on this album playing an instrument called the Gatorgan. Yeah, I saw that. Did you look at it? Horgan. I didn't. It's I should pretty have, cool but... looking. <laughs> It's, like, it's not quite a keytar, but it's a uh, it's pretty interesting. Oh, Guitarging, yeah. It looks like a it looks like a regular like electric guitar kind of a shape, but then it has a bunch of buttons on the bottom of yeah, it. Yeah, it's weird. Huh, very bizarre. What do you have about the album art? Because it's it's not my uh, honestly not a whole lot. Yeah. Um, the front cover it's an up close shot of uh, Sarah with the color slightly blown out. Uh, yeah, handwritten script. It says Sarah McLachlan and fumbling towards ecstasy. Fumbling. <laughs> Fumbling towards ecstasy. Uh, The photography is by Karen Hill. Uh, Karen is a New Zealand-born photographer who's well-known in the music and entertainment industry uh, for her work with uh, lots of musicians, lots of live shots of people um, during concerts and things like that, uh, and also a lot of advertising work that she's done. Uh, Like I said, she was born in New Zealand. She's a Canadian citizen who works works mostly out of California, so she's all over the place. Yeah, other than that, I could find very little about the cover. Yeah, there's, there's not a lot of information about it. I think that it's... It's just, you know, I mean, it was just a solid picture on the front and some text on the back. So. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Yeah. So getting that out of the way. So my connection to this record and why mm-hmm. I picked it is twofold. I think I've talked about this before, but back around the time of the release of Solace, uh, I was delivering pizzas for a name brand pizza chain and I was constantly in my car. Mm-hmm. Naturally, because I was constantly in my car, I was constantly listening to the radio. Uh, for all of you youngsters out there, this was well before the invention of satellite radio. So we were at the mercy of programmers and genre-based stations. Classic rock, current rock, classical music, urban music, country talk, and news. That's pretty much it. But because I lived in the Metro Detroit area, we were blessed to also receive radio stations from Windsor, Canada as well. And one of the stations that came from that area was 89X, uh, which specialized in what back then was referred to as alternative rock. And I believe I talked about this when we covered Bare Naked Ladies. So these Canadian stations were, one, out of the purview of the FCC, so they could play songs on uncensored. Two, played a huge range of music because everything not in the above genres was considered 
alternative, so it was everything else that they could play. And three, they had a requirement to play a certain percentage of the music on their station by Canadian artists. So I would listen to that all the time, uh, and that would be the first time that I heard Into the Fire by Sarah McLaughlin. And there was immediately something about her voice that I gravitated to. It was different from Tori Amos's voice. Uh, Sarah, Sarah's voice was very airy, very porous, almost luminous, and kind of ghostly. The way she slides up to certain notes was so unique that it was very captivating how she moved her voice into certain notes. Instead of just hitting it, she would slide up into it. Uh, and I loved it, but I never really sought it out to listen to other than on the radio. It just was there. And then fast forward a year or so, and I began to hear the first single from this record, and it was like she and Pierre Marchand had ramped up the sound and perfected it with Possession. Possession is the first single and also the first track on the album. And as I heard it more and more, I knew that I needed that record. So at this point, Heather and I had opened our own restaurant and we were working 18 to 20 hours a day getting it off the ground and our days were just, you know, exhausting. And we would, lis we would listen to the most obnoxious, loudest records on our way home just to keep ourselves awake on the 30-minute drive to our apartment. So we were listening to The Offspring and just in Rage Against the Machine, anything that was loud enough to keep people awake. But when we got home, we need you needed a come down. You needed something relaxing and something quiet, maybe a little more pensive. And this album fit the bill to a T. Add in the fact that this album is very emotional and filled with space and it was a perfect ender. And this album has very simple instrumentation. Reminds me of much simpler times when we were young and just starting out. And it makes me happy. It makes me feel good. And let me point out that I think it's unfortunate that a whole generation only knows Sarah McLaughlin as the chick from the sad puppy commercials. Yeah. Like, really. And which is one of the reasons why I didn't choose her next album, which was much more popular because it has that song on it. And I and didn't... You, you knew we would have to talk about it that way. Yeah. And like, I, I, I will 100% agree with you on that. On the one hand, I believe donated that song mm -hmm. for use and actively donates her time and money to, to help, you know, animals in need. I think that's great. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. But it has become this sort of a, a cultural, like, I guess it's a cultural touchstone to just know that, you know, oh, the second you start hearing that song, you're going to start crying because there's going to be pictures of like a one-eyed dog that turns towards camera and then there's a dog that only has three legs. And oh, ha Haven't they parodied it on on Family Guy? I'm, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure somewhere. I feel like he's somewhere. had to parody that I'm at sure some point. somewhere it has been parodied. <laughs> I can't I can't think of it right off the top of my head, but I'm 100% positive that there's a, a parody out there. Maybe even like Saturday Night Live or something. I'm sure somebody did. Yeah, but yeah, that, but, that irks me when, when her entire catalog is essentially distilled into, oh, you're the girl from the, the, the puppy commercials or the, yeah. you know, the, and it's like, listen to the rest of her stuff because there's rest of the stuff is fantastic. So you want to move into a track by track and, uh, yeah, you want to take a quick break? We'll yeah, come back, a, move into take track quick, by track. Yeah, sure. All right. We'll see you in a second. Possession. Mm. <laughs> you just stared at me awkwardly. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wait. I'm trying to possess you. Don't do that. 
So quickly on the heels of her previous release, Solace, uh, she felt like she was getting too patterned in her songwriting. In her words, too amateurish. Uh, so she had decided to take a completely different approach to writing this album. So she set it, settled into the mountains of Quebec to be alone, close to Pierre Marchand's studio, his private studio, and get what some would call a self-annihilating perspective. So she would get close <laughs> to herself by getting as far away from her normal life as possible. That's what that is. Huh. Yeah, right? All right, interesting. In the two years before her self-imposed isolation, she had been stalked by two fans. And to hear hear her tell it, there were way more than two fans. Yeah. But well, in two, that interview she did yeah. several years later, she was like, actually, there were a lot. But right. these two were the ones that took it too far, too far. And, and did some weird shit. Yeah, two in particular that not only sent her increasingly disturbing letters, but followed her around from show to show. And then one of them moved to Vancouver, where Sarah had situated herself, and he would occasionally show up in her neighborhood. On more than one occasion, she would run into this person at a local grocery store, knowing full well that it was not an accident that he was there at the same time as her. Yeah. Eventually, she was able to secure a restra uh, restraining order, but she was naturally shaken by the experience and that is the premise for the opening song on the record told from the very uncomfortable viewpoint of the stalker not the stalky by doing this by trying to write the song from his perspective she had to really inhabit that dark place that line between desire and obsession and how easily one can turn from one thing to the other and it's kind of woven into the sound and the haunting beginning that drums up those really uncomfortable feelings and it sounds like this That uh, that fan, yeah, uh, his name was Uwe Vandre. Yep. Uh, and after this song came out and was very successful, he actually filed a lawsuit against Sarah McLaughlin, alleging that he should get songwriting credits for this song because he believed she had taken the lyrics directly from letters that he had written to her. Is that not messed up? That is pretty messed up. He asked for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars Canadian and a televised meeting with Sarah to discuss the song. Of course, he would request that, right? And this 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 caused this huge controversy within the Canadian legal system because they tried to come up with a way to like, okay, he is only doing this to get into a room with Sarah McLaughlin. 100%. That's, that's the only reason he's doing this. But How do we keep also her safe? Yeah. Technically has the legal standing because if any of the things that he wrote in his letters actually were used as lyrics here and it's provable, then he should get songwriting credits. So how do you now keep Sarah McLaughlin safe while she's defending herself in court against this guy? And they had to come up with all these new ideas 
of like, okay, you know, can we have her record her testimony on tape and can we keep her out of the courtroom or does she have to be there legally? Like, what is the legal standing for that in the Canadian legal system? And it opened up all these incredible, like legal complications and it was going back and forth for several months and they finally had things set up and ready to go. And then Uwe Vandre actually committed suicide on September 28th, 1994. So it never went to court. Never went uh, to trial. Which is uh, just all around tragic. It's sad that he he was so obsessed. It's sad that he committed suicide. But it's also sad that, you know, the way that he felt he needed to express himself was by stalking and harassing somebody. Yeah, it's terrible. It's, it's a very terrible situation all around. But then, like you said, to then take that and be able to, like, inhabit his mind temporarily while you're saying, okay, how does he actually think about me? Right. And then write a song about it. That's it's gotta be a It's got to be a and, and, freaky place to go. Yeah. It's also apparently a lot of people mistake this as a love song. Right. <laughs> Once People you know what we just lyrics. talked about, no. <laughs> um, but uh, Sarah actually said in a Reddit AMA, quote, you wouldn't believe how many people use that song for their wedding. And that's, I just smile quietly. God. I just smile quietly to myself like, oh, that's nice. They don't look at the lyrics. I will be the one to hold you down. Yeah. Kiss you so hard. Take your breath away. You're, you're misreading that. Like, wish people spent more time actually looking at lyrics before. Hey, that's a good song for my wedding. Yeah. <sighs> it's a love song for a wedding. It's my <laughs> dream wedding. Hey! I'm going to play Every Breath You Take at the wedding. That's not a love song either. That's right. also a stalker song. For crying out loud, read the lyrics. Anyway, but so the best way I've ever heard her voice described was uh, described for this song or any song. It's It said uh, it's drowsy, delayed and unravels itself like a pale ribbon of smoke. I'm Ooh. like that person wrote that and I'm like, that's beautiful. That's that nice. is nice. Who wrote that? Do you know? Yeah, I just uh, didn't write it down. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, fuck that guy. Sorry. <laughs> or so, girl. Sorry, person. Or whoever. Uh, wait. Okay, what are we waiting for? Oh, that's the name of the next song. Oh, right. Am I reading this song right and this lyrics right? Is this about either an abortion or a miscarriage or a situation where a baby was born and, and there were complications and it passed away? I think you're reading it wrong. Okay. So this is a beautiful song, right? And the beginning of this record, you know, is a slow burn and mm -hmm. not in the way that I usually mean it. I feel like when I call an album a slow burn album, it typically means that it takes a while for me to warm up to it. Like maybe mm -hmm. the first couple of listens, I'm like, meh, but then I find it and I love it. For this record, I mean that it starts out like an ember kind of glowing in a fire and occasionally finds another piece of wood to light and then it flares up and then burns down a little bit more and it continues like that. But all the time it's kind of wrapped in the smoke of her voice that kind of comes in and out and in and out. And that's that's how I feel like slow burn. Like it's just kind of glowing, simmering. So this song, to me anyway, treads that very familiar water of the failed relationship where the couple were totally on the same page with one another, totally enraptured with each other. And then the reality slowly starts to reveal itself that they want different things and they're both carrying a lot of baggage and to stay together would not be healthy for either one of them. There's a lyrical section that kind of tells the tale. She says, you know, if I leave you now, it doesn't mean that I love you any less. It's just the state I'm in and I can't be good to anyone else like this. Right? That part sounds like this. You know, if I leave you
See, and I didn't really think about it from your point of view. You could be right. To me, it's so gentle and pretty. You end up being taken away by the songs. But there's yeah. a line in the song that is so telling about the relationship. One simple line changes the whole thing for me. She says, the vultures lie in wait. Mm-hmm. Right? That one simple line tells you the whole point of the song. They're lying in bed. They're completely oblivious to things because they're so into each other. But the vultures know because they can always smell it. They're circling over predicting death. And in this case, it's the death of the relationship. It's just, it's a nice, subtle use of a metaphor. I think you're probably right. It's just one of those things where for some reason in my first reading of it, the idea that it was about, you know, the death of a child, a very young child, or maybe even an unborn child was immediately where my brain went for some reason. She likes to write about dark shit. So she does. It's not outside of the realm of possibility. Plenty. She does write plenty. Plenty. It's another song about the end of a relationship, but this end is is much more straightforward. Yeah. You know, she loved him. She's going to do anything for him. And she never expected him to be the guy that would cheat on her. But then yeah. he did. And that realization has freed her from the relationship that probably wasn't that great for her in the first place. I would say I love the, the line where she says that uh, she could tell by simply looking uh, him in his eyes. Oh, it's sad. Really? That yeah. sounds like this. Oh. She's she's pretty clear about the whole thing. Sounds like her friends were all telling her that he was cheating on her and she went to bat for him every single time and refused to believe any of their stories until she looked at him and then she could see it for herself. I would say this song definitely out of, I think, everything on this album, for some reason, this one stands out to me as the one that is much more of that 90s sound to it. Mm. Something about it. I don't know if it's the beat. I don't know if it's the sort of compressed like drum sound that comes out of it. I don't I don't know exactly what it is, but to me, it says like this. This stands out as a much more like of its time song. Not mm-hmm. that that's necessarily a bad thing as the whole as a whole uh, on the album. It's it fits really well. I think it sounds really good, but it definitely has a little bit more of that sound to it. I can hear that. It's probably a little overproduced for the rest of the songs on the record. Heartbreaking song though. Yeah. Well, a lot of them on this album are. They truly are. They it's truly a, it's are. It's an album about breakups and heartbreak. So and this this one's no different. Good Enough is no different. The next song continues the darkness we got from the opening song, Possession. And the song is so full of space and air, right? It's one of my favorite songs on the record. And the song, according to Sarah, is about the love and trust and companionship shared between two women who are great friends. There are warm reassurances within the song. Clearly, one of them is being abused, or it kind of borders on abuse. Maybe he's just not all into the relationship, but uh, either way, the other friend is like, you know, don't tell me he's never been good to you because I know 
how he acts, uh, but that shouldn't make you feel like you aren't good enough to expect better for yourself. That's the whole premise of the song. Well, I even think that the title, Good Enough, it could be a form of verbal abuse. Could be saying, you're not good enough for me. Right. You know, when in fact she is much better than that. It's a hopeful song that skirts right along the edge of that darkness. There's that dark beauty in these songs. And I thought, you know, it's the kind of sound that I think Maya Wynn would have excelled at. Oh, yeah. Or would excel at this song and does to some degree. So uh, so I decided to reach out to uh, her manager, Heidi, and say, hey, th- has Maya ever thought about covering like Sarah McLaughlin and stuff like that? Ooh. And, you know, Maya and I, or Heidi and I had a, a conversation and she she said, and this is, this is Heidi speaking, not necessarily Maya, this is Heidi speaking. She said, we shy away from covers by women, especially women that have a similar voice because it tends to create comments that are comparing or competing and we try not to compete with women. She says it's not a rule, it's just more of a guideline because obviously hmm. she's done a Olivia Rodrigo cover, she's done a Wet Leg cover, but I totally get it. She doesn't want to to make that a competition that we're trying to outdo one another or my version's better than your version type situation. So I totally get it. Yeah, that's great. I would have never even thought about that, but that's that's a very like uplifting viewpoint to have and, right. and decision to make to say no no instead of you know trying to compete we're going to uplift one another right we're going to support each other instead of and you know cover other people's songs instead i think it's awesome yeah. but uh this song sounds like this anyway One thing we haven't talked about yet is what Pierre Marchand does to her songs and mm. her sounds. Uh, it's quite intoxicating. So Pierre Marchand was a student of Daniel Lemois who has produced U2 and Peter Gabriel, among others, and they are masters of the ambient sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, not beating you over the head with instruments, but introducing something and then taking away wisps of sounds. And that's what he does with her songs. There's just the scattered pulse of a drum machine. There's pale shimmer of an electric guitar. And I, the way I thought about this in my head is I likened it to like a candle flicker. You know something happened. Maybe you catch the flicker out of the corner of your eye, but by the time you turn to look at it, it stopped and it's glowing normally again. That's what his production sounds like to me. And then I found this description that fits it perfectly. Marshawn's productions tend to make individual instruments sound as if they've been drawn through a thick bruise of pigment. Makes each Ooh. instrument appear caught in a kind of luminous aura. And that's precisely what I have thought all these years. It's not dark
dark, but it's dim and maybe even disappears into darkness for a second just for it to come back on and then it's gone again. It's like having a whole musical landscape on a dimmer switch yeah. where he's just pulling a, he's pulling an instrument in, like maybe it's the drums, maybe it's like this really just kind of muted symbol that's just like, it's there, I get a sense of it and then it's gone. To me, that's that that's the beauty of this record. Yes, the songs are great, but there's there's something about the way it was mixed, the way it was engineered that uh, that's that takes me to a completely different place musically. Like just listening to this, Heather and I were listening to this outside, and it's just just listening to it in an open area, like not in a room or you know in your car, but with other space to add to it, just makes it sound even more beautiful. So hmm. that's what I have to say about that. Well, there you go. I would say the, <laughs> the music video for this song is really nice too. It was actually directed by. Karen Hill, who did the the photo photography for the cover. Oh yeah, yeah, nice, Mary, Mary. So, again, I read this song three different ways. Do you think Mary is a woman who is suffering from heartbreak? Or is she a prostitute? Or is she dead? Well, there's a lot to unpack in this song. Right. So, for a long time, many, many, many years, I was under the impression that this song was about Mary, mother of Jesus. Fair enough. Through the years, things that I've read just kind of solidified that impression. People on message boards seem to back that up. There are lines like, cradling them in your arms, which contradicts up images of the Pieta with Mary holding the broken body of Christ. And I was I was down with all these explanations uh, until I began really deep diving for this episode when someone postulated an explanation that made a lot of sense. They seemed to think that this song was about adoption and more specifically oh. the adoptive mother, the one that wants the child and makes all of the sacrifices and loves the child as their own, even though they know it's not technically a part of them. And I think that's such a great explanation explanation. If you look at lines like, she reaches up and a stranger's flesh is offered, but no one sees her quiet suffering because all she is is ever trying to be the best there is for that child, which is the ultimate sacrifice. It was very strange. I, I mentioned that Heather and I were listening to this outside last week and uh, we're just, you know, sitting in our hot tub and I'm like, and she's like, what's the episode you guys are recording? I'm like, we're doing this plumbing towards ecstasy. And I'm like, we should listen to it. So I started playing it and I said, before this song comes on, I want you to tell me what this song is about. Out, and that's all I'm going to tell. That's all, all I'm going to say. And uh, I look over at her and she's crying. And I'm like, this isn't odd. She's like, this song is about adoption, 100% about adoption. I did. I gave her no insight whatsoever. Whoa. And I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, listen, listen, it's all about sacrifice. It's, it's all about doing that one thing for for someone that doesn't have anything, the ultimate sacrifice. And, uh, um, and I was blown away. And I'm like, well, I haven't heard that. I've listened to this record for 30 years. I haven't heard that. And I think people that adopt children are some of the strongest, bravest people in the world. And I feel oh, that absolutely. knowing that Sarah was adopted and had someone in her life that, that was that strong and brave certainly worked out in her favor. And I feel like this may be an ode to that adoptive mother. And this the song sounds like this. Why do I feel so cold? My heart is saying one thing But my body won't let What 
you thinking? <laughs> I thought like when I came up with like when I had like three different paths to go down, I was like, all right, these are probably all one of these has got to be right. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> but uh, also I wrote down the line, take her hand. She will lead you through the fire. Oh, and give you back hope. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, that would apply to ad- adoption as well. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And also she'd be the last to know. Sarah wouldn't know yeah. she was adopted as a baby until they were ready to tell her. Yeah. Also, the song benefits from Marshawn's production introduces that uh, jazzy hi-hat groove that would seem out of place for one of her other songs, but it works here. It's pretty cool. I do like that sound. I love every bit of that song. <laughs> so you wouldn't want to go elsewhere? No. Nah. I say this one I definitely think is you, you you know we talked earlier about how she was told by her parents she couldn't move away to Vancouver and I think this is her like direct response to that event in her life. 100%. Like, this song is this song is just straight up like oh you don't know who I am mom and dad and screw you but in a nice way. Yeah, she <laughs> according to Sarah this song is about the trappings of youth and adolescence and not really knowing who you are and struggling to find your own identity in your parents home and society. Nailed it. (laughs) There's a line, this is heaven to no one else but me, right? How many hours did I spend in my little bedroom with my headphones, listening to record after record, wanting to be anywhere else or elsewhere, like the title says, and having to turn that into my heaven, something you couldn't possibly explain to your parents. And every kid, and I say that knowing that every kid goes through that battle and we all think that that battle is totally unique, but it's not. Every parent went through it themselves as teenagers but they might not remember how it feels and our ability to relate gets dulled through the years and it's frustrating but this song says it so well and this is what it sounds like So the rhythm that she uses for her vocals and the lyrical delivery of the chorus, where it is almost kind of floating up and down, one line flows into the next. It's like a kid trying to explain what's happening. So this happened, then this, then this, and I can't catch my breath, but I need to get it all out right now or else I'm going (laughs) to burst and I can't remember what I'm going to say. When a song can relay its meanings with lyrics, but also doubles down in relaying a feeling from the delivery, that's a special song right there. How many times have my kids like run up to me and trying to explain a story? I'm like, dude, you got to take a breath. That's what I was at Tyler's house and Tyler was down in his basement and then I was down in the basement as well and then his mom yelled from upstairs and said we can come upstairs and have snacks but like I ran to go run up the stairs but Tyler tried to run up the stairs at the same time and then we both got to the door at the top of the stairs and we couldn't fit through the door and we banged our heads into each other and we both fell on the floor and at first we both started to cry because it hurt a lot but then we both started to laugh because it was actually pretty funny and then his mom came walking in and was like what are you boys doing on the floor and I was like we both fell down because we hit our heads because we were running up the stairs because we tried to run through the door too quickly yes that like that yes exactly like that thousand times that's happened and that's I, why i don't have kids right you're trying to find a place to interrupt him like wait could you just <laughs> can you just skip the part what happened can you just so tyler's head fell off but then, then it was and you're like well, what what can you just what skip that part? To the part why you're all bleeding can you just move to that part please why why are why are you going to the hospital what <laughs> yes that is exactly what i meant like you just you, i gotta get it all out of my head right now because i don't want to <laughs> skip anything and you have to hear this whole story i don't i don't want to hear it i don't know who's is 
anybody broken? Well, I think I think Taylor's arm is broken. It's backwards. Oh shit! <sighs> All right. All right. Let's get him to the hospital. Call his mom. Oh, it happened shit. off our property, so we're fine. Right. That wasn't in the basement, right? No. Have it at the park. Oh, great. Happened in the yes. city park. Great. Sue the city. We get to oh. sue the city. Oh. All right. Uh, circle. 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 Interesting idea that the idea of the interesting idea that the idea of the idea is that it's an idea. <laughs> oh, it's definitely an idea. Uh, no, interesting idea that the relationship can be thought of as a circle that you go through over and over and over again, where you, you love each other, but then you have all these things that build up in your life to get on your nerves and you fight and you argue and then you get angry and then you make up and then you make out and then you fall in love again and then you start the circle back over. Yeah. And whether that means that you go through each relationship in a circle or your the relationship you're, you're, that you're in it goes through those circles over and over again, obviously open to interpretation. But Well, it's like there there's no growth, right? They just talk yeah. and talk and talk and get nowhere yet neither of them have the courage to leave it to get out yeah. of it because it just goes just cycles back around so when writing this record in her winter isolation in the mountains of quebec quebec sarah kept a very small journal and every morning she would fill three pages with free association the first page would have invariably be about thoughts about her coffee but by page two, she would get into some accidental introspection that she would mine for lyrics. She would focus on the kind of slow re redistribution of these lyrics over the whole record. So instead of writing one song at a time, uh, she kind of worked them on, she worked on all of them simultaneously. And then she was snowed in. So lines were bleak and minimal. And then towards the end of the winter, she discovered a river behind the house. And as the snow melted, spring bloomed. And she said it was like an explosion and her lines and thoughts gained more color and focus. And that's when the album really began to coalesce. So she started to walk two miles from the house to Pierre's studio, where they would work on songs together and add musical ornamentation slowly, like a novel unfolding. And that is why this record sounds so much different than her others. So while it's mixed incredibly well, it doesn't have the high gloss of her first two records. It's very raw and a, a less immediate sound at the same time. Like I said, it's a very slow burn and it sounds like this. Rolling into each other's So do you know there, there's a guitar solo at the end of this? Mm -hmm. Is that Sarah or is that Bill Dylan? Bill Dylan, okay. playing plainly and wonderfully by Bill Dylan, muted to some degree, mm -hmm. like he's playing through a curtain. That's why that's the way it sounds to me. Yeah, playing through a curtain. I love the sound of this song. I've always loved that song. It is very unique, but I like it. Uh, Ice. It's a one and done, hit it and quit it fuck song. Is it? I think so. Excuse no. me, I just hit the mic. You don't think so? Uh, not what I know about this song, no. Oh, okay. So is this, okay, so what do you know well, about this song? Well, it is, but not in the way I think you think it is. Oh. Yeah. So in between the end of the oh, tour. No, is this a, yeah. is this a <laughs> Hold on. Non-consensual? <laughs> yes. And oh, no. worse. And oh, worse, no. Kyle. Yeah. So in between the end of the tour for Solace and the beginning of the writing of this record, Sarah accompanied the relief organization 
organization, World oh, Vision, yes. to Thailand this. and Cambodia, assisting in the filming of a documentary about poverty and child prostitution. Mm. And this experience affected her as it would anyone. She said she came away with a broader understanding of the darkness in the world. And this song is the one she chose to process those experiences. Oh, she no. said, I've tried to portray a sense of hope in all of my songs, but this one doesn't have much. So, oh, see, I yeah. got such an upbeat meaning out of this song. Oh, no. It, it kind of. What does that say about me? I don't know. But do so I it, need to become a child prostitute. <laughs> can you do that now? I don't know if I can, can do you? that anymore. So it's a skeletal song, right? Bare bones, just vocals and guitar and a little bit of saxophone washes in and out, circulates around and then disappears. Kind of like the subjects in the song. The line, the only comfort is the moving of the river, is a beautiful line until you realized that she's singing about a woman who is being raped and the only comfort she finds is listening to the sound of the river, which gives her something else to focus on. Mm. It's harrowing. It's terrible. And when you know that and you didn't, it's very hard to listen to, kind of like Tori Ames' Me and a Gun. It's It sounds like this. striking out on my uh I'll, I'll come back to that in a second because that's worth saying i am striking out on my interpretations of these songs <laughs> on this album matthew that's okay i'm gonna be curious to see what happens here in a couple of minutes because uh <laughs> there's one coming up where i also interpreted it one way oh boy but uh so we'll just just before we get to the end you didn't do the song blue did you at the very uh, very end no i did not okay fun like towards ecstasy is the last song on yes the record. yes which okay. is a hidden track but yeah yes so uh yeah the sax is played by uh michelle Dubot, who is a very accomplished jazz multi-instrumentalist. Um, it is the only appearance of the sax on this record, and while I mm-hmm. typically can't stand that instrument in the context of rock music, uh, I think it's very effective here, because it really isn't used for melody. It's used for atmosphere and texture, something that uh, Marchand excels at mm-hmm. in producing. So, I don't mind it that so much. So, if it's, if it's something, if it's an instrument that you normally don't like, but it is used as an accent, yeah. it's a little bit of a... Correct. A little bit of a... Right? Maybe a flute? Call it. Yeah. But you're not okay a rock that. flute. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you see where I'm going with this. I do see where you're going. All right, just want to make sure we're on the same page. Oh, we're on the same page. All right. All right. Uh, hold on. Yeah, this one, th- I did. Okay, this one I'm pretty sure I interpreted correctly. Okay. Uh, it's the story of a man in a blimp. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, uh, Sarah it. was inspired by a documentary about a woman whose husband was dying from AIDS. Uh, that documentary is called The Promise Kept. Yeah. Um, I could not find copies of that available. It's an older documentary from probably the late 80s or early 90s. But uh, it, the song tells that same story, basically. Two lovers, one who's dying and the other who hopes and prays every day that they survive just one more day so that they can be together. Right, and he's uh, that person's also pleading with God yeah. to let her husband into heaven. 
Yeah. The line is, uh, 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 so now you're sleeping peaceful. I lie awake and pray you'll be strong tomorrow and we'll see another day and we will praise it and love the light that brings a smile across your face. That's a strong song. It was the uh, second single released from the record. Uh, Good Enough was the third and final one. And it would end up getting number 59 in the Canadian chart and number 29 in the Billboard alternative chart. Uh, another another indication that her luck in the States was changing at that time. Uh, and that song sounds like this. Hold on. Hold on to yourself For this is gonna hurt like hell Hold on Hold on to yourself You know that only time will tell What is it in me that refuses to The drum work on that song is fantastic. Very subtle. Yeah. Good stuff. Ice cream? So, just up front. Yeah. Is this about some serious subject? Is this about, like, poverty in Africa? Or... No. <laughs> oh, nope. Okay. I believe <laughs> this song is about a woman's orgasm. Huh. You could be right. Like, the part where she says, your love is better than ice cream and chocolate. I guess that means that it's pretty good. Yes. In all honesty, Matthew, women's orgasms don't make any sense to me. <laughs> Uh, Kyle, in all honesty, they don't make any sense to me. (laughs) Well, okay, so good. Uh, I did some research. Whoa. uh, But I still have no idea what the fuck is going on down there. There's a man in a boat. There's quivering, which is where I thought you stored your arrows when you're you're shooting. Yes, yes. There's a lump. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. There's curtains and drapes. The entire country (laughs) of Libya is down there. The word moist gets used a lot. I spent four hours of my life trying to figure this out. And I can safely say, after all of that, no thank you. Straight people. Well, four hours. Flattered, but you but spent to the four entire hours trying to figure that out. Everywhere? No, thank you. I'm you spent done. four I'm, hours trying to figure that spent out. Spent four hours trying to figure yeah, that out. I spent 31 years trying to figure that out, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still you not could, entirely sure. Matthew, but most of it's an accident, could, right? Like, could, whoops. <laughs> you could switch teams, Matthew. I'm telling you, you've had the equipment for 50 years now. You know right. how that works. Most of it's an accident. And I'm like, oh, you, that, you like that? But I, what, really? After all, oh, okay. Well, I'll try that again. No, not that. Like, but that was the same thing. No, no, it was different. It's Damn gone. It. So oh, on boy. the surface, this is the happiest and most joyful song on the record. Yes. However, every single stanza of the song ends with a line that would counter all of that. Mm. Your love is better than ice cream. However, everyone here knows how to cry. And I think there's a, a really it's a really good representation of a relationship. You know, hey man, when things are good, they're really good. They're the best. But we still have our conflicts. We, ha- we still hurt each other and here we are. There's still dread in this song. And she never quite escapes it on the record. Happier, right? But not happy. It's happier, but not happy. Uh, it sounds like this. Everyone here 
And to really <laughs> to really enforce the limited amount of happiness on this record, this is the shortest song on the album, clocking in at two minutes and 44 seconds. Because we don't want to The same give length him... of the typical orgasm. Right, we... <laughs> Really? I don't know. I don't know. Well, he did, did do the research. Four hours of research, apparently. So, uh, fear. Exactly. Yes. I set a timer. <laughs> I was like, that's that's all I want. That's all I want to know about. That's exactly the limit. Four hours right in the middle is of the a paragraph. Limit. And the secret to ultimate pleasure. Beep. Oh, I'm done. <laughs> You couldn't have written it down, Kyle? Nope, sorry. Uh, Didn't even bookmark the link, so. Fear. Fear. Uh, This is really the only song in the record that loses me to some degree musically. The opening of the song doesn't do much for me. It seems like a lot of uh, Daniel Lanois experimental bullshit Mm -hmm. that I can't stand that he would just jam in to like the beginning of a song. Uh, Lyrically, it's much better than it is musical to me. Again, it's relationship-based. She's very concerned about losing her relationship. She feels like she has everything to lose and not much to gain, which was a shitty place to be in a relationship. Right? The fear here, I think, is the fear of not feeling like you have anything to contribute to a relationship. Like, you you, you aren't bringing to the table anything, and if you're not bringing something to the table, why would the other person stay with you? Exactly. Sounds like this. Like I said, still have her voice, uh, but I'm not crazy about the sound of that song. Uh, you have anything about fear? I mean, that's really it. It's it's. Uh, I feel like this was a almost like a tack on track. Like, well, we've got it. Let's throw it on here. We can fill the CD out a little bit more. I shoehorn it in there. Yeah, not crazy about that. Yeah. I still don't love that uh, usage. Yeah, where you just Push. like jam- filler, just jamming a track oh, on, yeah. a, on an album. Well, and I think too that that happened a lot more in the '90s because suddenly album sales tanked, and they now knew, hey, we only have to pay attention to CDs and cassettes. So suddenly you can make a cassette up to 90 minutes if you really want. And a CD, you don't have to worry about flipping it over so you don't have to time anything out. You know you have, what is it, 80 minutes or 77 minutes or whatever? 77 minutes, I think. Something like that. Whatever. You have that continuous. So now, why would you, you know, we can make 100 tracks in 77 minutes or we can make one long track in 77 minutes and nothing's going to interrupt it. Right. So, I I think uh, that from a technical standpoint, that's one one of the reasons why we saw it happen in the 90s and I think it was a mistake. I right. think that it, it became less of a craft of like how do we put this together to fit within the constraints that we have and more of a let's just put it all on there until it's full. I think that's and, exactly what it was. So yeah, just put it on there until it's full and we even get that with the with the next track, Fumbling Towards Ecstasy, the final yeah. track on the record which is nine and a half minutes yeah. because it has a hidden track within it. Mm-hmm. You know, our old 90s favorite, the hidden track. Yeah. I still think uh, we should do an episode on hidden tracks i think it would be oh i absolutely think we should that would be really cool because i've got some cool ones that are um well we'll save over the episode yeah yeah uh (laughs) but this is one oh go ahead i would say this also it's not even really like there's pieces in here from ice there's a piano solo version of possession in here there's also it contains lyrical themes from fear that continue over it really is like a weird mishmash of a bunch of stuff that was just like "Eh, we just have this we recorded this let's put this together and see if we can make something out of it i think i think you're right 
but it's a, it's one of those rare occasions where the title song is actually the last song on the record. It's strange. Uh, yeah. And if you found this like I did, uh, you will found out that the title of the song is from a poem uh, that Sarah first encountered when she was in high school. Uh, the poem is called Dulce et Decorum Est by World War, uh, World War One poet Wilfred Owen. Uh, she became entranced by a line in the poem that says, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. It depicts the fluttering rhythm issued by a group of soldiers desperately trying to secure their helmets and gas masks in a haze of poisonous mustard gas during World War One. And where she nails this song is the bridge, and it kind of depicts her entire entire journey of the record. The bridge says, peace in the struggle, to find peace, comfort on the way, to comfort, and if I shed a tear, I won't cage it, I won't fear love. It sounds like this. So there it is. So it, it feels like this record is kind of an extended therapy session to get here. Uh, but she won't fear the love despite all the possibilities that it will hurt her. Uh, she will embrace it for all of its wonder, but all of its darkness as well. And that message is a fantastic one. You know the possibility of getting hurt exists with every love, but you embrace it for all the good that comes in spite of the bad that comes as well. And I think that's that's the whole message of the record is, is that this journey that she was on through shattered relationships and and struggled relationships with you know with her friends and and in being stalked and all these things that it even in spite of that that she can find some good in there and i think that's a that's a great message to get across yeah that's a good summation of it i mean you know keep going even though there's bad times the good times will come along eventually right that's fumbling towards ecstasy by sarah mclaughlin it's one of my very favorite records from that period and i still listen to it from time to time but you have to be in the right mood um i think it's not quite as depressing as, say, Sea Change by Beck. Oh, God. Um, or some of the others we've covered. Uh, yeah. it, but it's definitely dark. But there is some hope and light in every one of the songs. They're not all across the board, like, like terribly depressing. It's just there's a dark beauty to their songs, uh, to her songs. And that's that's why I love this record so much. And we want to know what you think about it. Yeah. Uh, we want you to get a hold of us and tell us that uh, you hate this record or you love this record or I should have covered Surfacing because, you know, what about those? puppies um so you can get a hold of us now, at facebook go ahead i say well, we should also point out that we actually stole money from the aspca to make this episode yeah we did just to counterbalance that we so. had to even it out i think we had to even it out a little yeah, bit we, we really we had to even heist the, right you had to even the playing field stole 18 dollars and 41 cents i went out so. went out into my living room and took the treats away from my dogs just to <laughs> just to make them suffer a little bit yeah you can't have these um uh so yeah you can contact us on our socials facebook.com forward slash audio judo uh, twitter at audio judo and instagram audio underscore judo and mm -hmm. if you want to get a hold of us directly you can tech, uh, email us at info at audio judo.com which we will respond to uh, fairly quickly um you have some shout outs over there i do uh yeah. shout it out loud tier simon c our uk consultant thank you so much uh front row seats tier aaron p darlene w michael a thank you all so much backstage pass tier christian s david w chris 
Justin K, Michael S, Scott K. Thank you all so much. I know two of you for sure have episodes coming up shortly yep. uh, that we need to record. And another of you has an episode in the next six months sometime. So we have episodes coming up uh, besides that one. Uh, we have episodes coming up from uh, the Velvet Underground, from Wire, from the police, from Van Halen. we got a whole bunch of stuff coming up. Oh, yeah. Interviews and some other shit. And it's going to be great. Uh, and we appreciate you hanging with us. Um, until two weeks from now, yep. uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.